This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? I'm ready. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast, guys. I'm Jeff Fader. Today with me is Steve Pellegrino of Pellegrino Cutlery. But before we get to Steve, we got to take care of, you know, the normal business. I just used some Axe Wax because I had to make some pairing, some carbon steel pairing knives. And here's a little trick. I wanted to wrap them up before I glued the handles on. And I wanted to make sure that I don't know how long it was going to be till I get to them. I don't want them to, I don't want anything to happen to them. And what I did was I put some Axe Wax on them and then I wrapped them up. And then I put the handle scales on and it was great. I also have a bat wing knife from Steve Pellegrino, 52100. I put some Axe Wax on that just in case because sometimes I just don't, I want to make sure that I'm not going to get any patina or unnecessary rust on his beautiful knife. So if you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off your entire order. And it's great stuff. It's awesome. I use it on all my wood, my walnut, any kind of carbon steel, Damascus. I love Axewax. Definitely get some Axewax. And for 10% off, it's so inexpensive. You might as well just get a couple pucks. And P.S., their hoodies are awesome. No, um, Noah, Noah sent me a hoodie, and... I, one of the nicest hoodies. I, I was like, I got to get better. I got to make better Vader Knives hoodies because Axe Wax is showing me up. They look great. And go get yourself some Axe Wax, get a hoodie, get a T-shirt, support them. All natural, food safe. I'm with you. The next is, is I just had a great conversation with uh, Andreas Kalani of AK Interactive. You guys are like doing a great job. You're, you're using AK Interactive. You're consulting with them. A lot of you guys are just consulting with them. You already have your website. Maybe you don't need a new website, but maybe you need a little fixed up. Maybe you need your logo fixed up. And he's doing that for you. He actually, I recently sent, somebody wanted to know what his work is like uh, at AK Interactive dot com slash full blast and i sent him to charlie ellis's website that's uh charlie ellis uh, charlie lionheart's website and he did a beautiful job he made it very simple he made it beautiful he made it easy to use easy for charlie to sell his work easy for uh to him to interact with his with his staff and that for with the customers and that's really what it's all about so if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, you will automatically, as a listener of the podcast, get 10% off. Now, here's one thing I want you guys to know. A lot of you guys are, like, reaching into um, Andreas Kalani's uh, DMs, and, and he's sending you to akinteractive.com slash full blast because when you fill that paperwork off up, what you're getting is you're giving him the information of what you need. And instead of just sending him a DM, what you can do is in the show notes of this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, there's a link. So go follow the link. Go fill out the paperwork. And he's, he'll talk to you. He talks to a pile of people. And he, he's really uh, great. And he's having he's very uh, he's surprised, actually, that we're, my listeners are actually listening to me, which is nice. So go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. Put in... Your information, Andreas Kalani will either make you a new website or fix yourself, your, fix your website up or fix your logo up or help you with a logo or whatever you want to do. It's definitely worth it, and he's a great guy, and he's a maker making stuff for other makers. So he talks your language, okay? Thank you. My guest today is Philly's own 
Steve Pellegrino, Pellegrino Cutlery. I met Steve a number of years ago. He's an extraordinarily talented knife maker, but he's also been dubbed and crowned the best dress knife maker in the knife game by Craig Lockwood, and I, I tend to agree with him. Good-looking guy. Steve's here with me today. Steve, how are you? Jeff, I'm doing well. How are you? How are you feeling? Stiff, man. You know, I, it's uh, it's been a slow recovery, that's for sure. This summer, I was in Wisconsin, and it must have been in, uh, was it July or August? July. To, July. And I was, the first time I took a uh, little bit of a break, especially during the pandemic, we were visiting my in-laws, and I was looking on Instagram, and I don't know, something came up that Steve had gotten into a terrible car accident. And it, I ended up calling you because I was, you know, it was terrifying. I mean, it sounded mm. bad. Yeah. And it sounded incredibly crazy. And I was wondering if you could tell the story of what happened. I, I can, I can tell the story. It, it was, it was strange. You know, it was some final destination shit, right? Because I, I didn't see it coming. And um, it's one of those freak accidents that there's, there's really nothing you can do to protect yourself against it. And, you know, I'm a planner, so I, I you know, I, I think about all of these things, and this is something that I couldn't control, which is the scariest part. So here's what happened. My fiancé at the time and I were just driving home after dinner, and there was a thunderstorm cell in the area. It was kind of coming in and out, and uh, it had returned on our way home. And so we were on the highway. It's sort of like a two-track highway. It's in New Jersey. It wasn't terribly fast. So we were doing maybe 35 behind somebody else. And I guess it has something to do with the ash borer beetle, which is a a phenomenon here in the Northeast. And so these ash borer beetles kill ash trees by eating them from the inside out. So essentially what you have left is like styrofoam, right? Wait, so So you're saying, okay, so what you're saying is this was like bug damage. I can I can only imagine because it looked like an ash tree having gone back and looked and you know this branch fell off in what we nobody would consider super high winds. I mean it was a pretty typical thunderstorm. You know I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I'm I've been through these before a million times and I didn't, we didn't think anything of it. You know we were just going about our our evening and we were driving by. And from one second, everything was fine. And the next second, uh, there was glass everywhere. Um, There was, uh, you know, my head was being pushed down. And I later realized that was the sunroof assembly. And, um, you know. So 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 you're going 35 miles an hour and a branch came through your car? Straight through the sunroof, smashed the glass, pulled the entire assembly out of the roof. And then I presume one of the rails from said assembly hit me in the head. It was a considerable laceration, but that wasn't really the issue. Uh, my C6 vertebrae in my spine was fractured, so it's up in my neck. How big of a branch do you think this was? I can only imagine that it weighed at least 50 pounds. And you're going 35 I, miles an hour, and this branch comes in and hits you right in the head. And you were driving like a, was it, was it, was it a convertible or... Well, no. Uh, so it was a it was a regular uh, sedan uh, with a sunroof that was closed. I wasn't driving; my fiance was, and I, you know, it it hit me instead of her, which I'm thankful for. Um, you know, I always I joke with people when it comes up that I have a harder head, so it it worked out well. But you know, uh, it, it the branch didn't hit me directly; the sunroof did. 
so it hits the sunroof. The sunroof caves in on top of your head and it just yeah. knocks you down or? It kind of pushed me down to the seat. You know, when I, I didn't black out or anything, I was conscious the whole time and I realized, okay, something's on top of me. Um, and it, and my neck hurt all of a sudden. Um, you know, but I, I she told me later, like, you were very confused repeating yourself. Um, you know, because I didn't know what happened, but I knew it was bad, right? Right. Ambulance comes, takes me away. You know, I remember looking out of the back window of the ambulance, and um, it, there was a lot of water. Like, this was a very heavy thunderstorm. So, you know, I... Um, yeah, so do you it, think it, that the top of the sunroof hit the top of your head and your chin hit your chest? I'm trying to imagine what would have what would have happened. Like does your yeah, chin hit question. your chest and I think the I think the biggest issue uh was the fact that there was compression in my spine and it, it right. partially fractured a, a vertebrae. Uh specifically my C six. Um you know, after having been to the doctor, it couldn't have gone better, <laughs> if I can right. say that, because it it broke in a teardrop fracture on the front of the vertebrae. If it happened in the back, I'd need surgery. So it's it's we're talking like degrees of of change that made this you know a lot less catastrophic than it could have been. So what did did she? crashed the car i mean did the, did no. the car did she just he just pulled over to the side and she did an incredible job she pulled over to the side of the road came around to my side helped me out and by then you know called the ambulance obviously they showed up in no time despite the conditions and uh yeah i mean in from 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 that angle like it couldn't have gotten better and yeah she she did everything right she stayed calm i couldn't be more thankful for that how how bad was it that she knew to call the ambulance were you I, completely uh, out of it, or? I mean, I yeah, I'm told I was out of it, but I wasn't unconscious. But you know, there was a lot of blood. Um, blood coming from where? From from my head, because I was hit directly on the top of my head, sort of where the crown of your hair is. All right, right, right. And and uh, you know, your head has a lot of blood vessels in it, and it's very thin skin down to the bone, which is exactly what happened. So you know that it it opens up those blood vessels, and uh, you you know you're going to get a lot of a lot of bleeding. Oh my god! So I was so the ambulance. The ambulance comes. The ambulance takes you away. Yeah. Are, are you overnight in the hospital or? No, I mean, so here's the thing: we go to the emergency room and they do a CAT scan. CAT scan? I think I so. Whatever you say. It was one of those. Me. They put they put me in yeah, the tube. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's CAT and, scan. Let's say CAT scan. Yeah. And so the thing is, I had to wear a mask as well because you know this is right. still COVID times and. Um, I don't. Th- I think that the accident wasn't half as bad as being in that tube with a mask on. I was like, you know, in tons of pain, super paranoid. You know, I hate hospitals. I have a mask on and I'm inside this tube, so yeah. I was just trying to stay calm so they could get sure. a picture. You know, and you're um, in there for like a while when you're in those things. You're in there for a while. And you can't move. Oh yeah, it feels like a year, but it's probably like a few minutes. Um, but they they determined that. Um, you know, I, I had I was in a brace. They put the brace on me immediately, and um, they basically said you can go home under certain conditions. And apparently, that was you know it was good enough for me. I wanted to get the hell out of there. You know, I mean, I don't have health insurance. I haven't since I was sixteen. So you know, I knew this was going to be expensive. And the scariest part for me was like, what if I can't work? Yeah. You know that was that was probably the worst part. Like I was laying there not knowing. You know what what I was going to be able to do once this was over because I knew enough about spinal injuries to know that like I could be paralyzed. 
that's the first when I heard the I, I think it was a friend of yours just start and wrote this thing about I don't know how, I yeah. don't even know how I don't even because you didn't you were you kept your mouth shut mm-hmm. and your friend put something out there and all of a sudden that was the first thing I thought of is how is this guy going to work yeah how is this guy going to work yeah and so the you know the, the the worst part about the one of the worst things around now is the fact that health insurance is so necessary oh yeah it's like but it's so impossible to navigate especially if you're a creative person where this is the last thing you want to talk about is your taxes and health insurance it just <laughs> it just goes goes completely beyond what you would normally deal with so you're 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 in this tube you know you've had this terrible accident to the point where your girlfriend is smart enough to get the ambulance which is like that means bad bad they say you can go home what are you thinking when you leave the hospital well by then i was walking you know i was on my own two feet they said can you feel your arms can you feel your legs i could um I don't. I don't like help. I probably would not have accepted a wheelchair, even if they offered it or insisted. That's, even, you know what that all is about. You know what that's. That's the liability. They know they have yeah. to do that. Like my wife told me that, like, even when you've given when you've given birth, mm. they make you, they won't let you walk out. They yeah, send right. you to the curb in the ch- and it's all liability. It's nothing I to do imagine. with like here, here, Steve. You must be feeling terrible. Sit down in the chair and I'm like get your fucking ass in this chair because we don't want you to sue you if you fall. Oh yeah, well this is the country of litigation, right? So right. that's our that's the favorite thing to do. But you know, re- regardless of that, uh, I walked out because I could wearing nothing but that paper thin gown, and it was a cold yeah. rainy evening. So you know, yeah. I wasn't feeling great, but I was walking, and I felt like all right, I can walk. I'll deal with the rest of this tomorrow because it was late. It was like, I think it was past midnight by the time we walked out of there. So they didn't really do a whole lot. I mean, what what besides stitching you up in your head? No, they didn't. I I did wouldn't let them. And and there's two reasons for that. Uh, So there was either going to be stitches, which wouldn't dissolve. They had to be removed. Or they were going to do staples, which also need to be removed. And all I hear in my head are dollar signs. Right. I'm 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 thinking they want they want to get my ass back in here so they can take them out and charge me for that too. So I was so like, what did you so what did you say? I said leave me alone. And and you know that like at a certain point like you, they can't insist they can't force anything upon you like you know if you say no it's no. So you know so it, did you have like I a convinced... big gash on your head? Yeah, it was a big cut. But I get cut all the time, man. So like that, I wasn't worried about the cut. I was worried about you know being able to work. Honestly, Jeez, you know, it's so, you know, I, I've had any time I've had stitches, I've always taken them out myself. And yeah. it's only because I don't want to, I actually, you know, there's, I, I do, I, this drives me crazy that this is what's going on where your top concern is you're not going to, you're not taking, you know, it's interesting because my, you know, my family is a lot of doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners, mm. and they talk about people who do AMA, which means they sign AMA. I think it's AMA again against medical uh, against authorization medical or... authorization, something like that. Basically, yeah. yeah, you go into a place and you can say, "I sign away. I don't. I I don't hold them liable. I don't want to. I don't want their treatment and stuff like that." The fact remains that certain things. You have to like weigh the options, mm-hmm. and you're probably not of your right mind. I mean, you get smashed on the head. Your neck is probably killing you. You're they're asking you questions of like potential paralysis, which is like terrifying. Yeah, 
Yeah. And you're refusing certain things just because you know that you're not going to be able to afford them. Pretty much. I mean, that's I crazy. Knew. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, I didn't know that my friend was making a GoFundMe. Right. Which I would have protested to. Yeah. Completely. That's what he said. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. I know he did. You know, and it's it's like. Uh... It shouldn't require charity. It shouldn't require all my friends to get together and throw money in a bucket so that I can not be paralyzed or, you know, get the, at the very least get the care that I need. And, uh, you know, without getting into the politics of it uh, and, and the, the huge issues with health care in this country, um, you know, it, I, I made it out OK and I'm thankful for that. And I, I was able to cover all of the bills that resulted thanks to everyone's generosity, which I'm, I'm never going to be able to repay. Yeah, you will. People listen. Here's the interesting thing. When that happened, I was like teetering, teetering around in like my pajamas <laughs> and then getting texts from Jimmy DeResta saying what happened and what are we going to do and what's going on. Yeah. And people started reaching out. I talked to a few people about it after I talked to you on the phone. And I, I think that I think that the problem is besides the fact that we no one knows what to do people were worried about you in regards to i mean you're a successful knife maker you on your own you have your own shop you're doing your, your you know what all i can think of is when i'm at, i was out on vacation for a week and i know it cost me so the fact is is like yeah. what's going to happen but the real question was is like you know with all these gofundme there's so many gofundmes out there and i donate to a lot of them for people that i know and stuff like that but sometimes you just don't know sometimes yeah. you don't know and then when you're when you're trying to help a person you don't know exactly what the story is you don't know where it's going to go some of it is some of it is some of them are. I get I get nervous because I I haven't been burned, but I've been there have been GoFundmes and Kickstarters that have been asked to be uh, to help out, and they go to these things that I just don't want to. So I was very very cautious in regards to it, and I had to talk to you before I even considered it because I'm like I don't know if this is something you want to do, and I know that it was it was a tough situation for you because as you said, and your friend was saying that you don't you don't want to take help. I don't know how you. I don't know how you would be able to pay for medical bills if you didn't. Yeah. If you're if you're a, a solo working person, you know, you don't have health insurance, and you're you you you're you know people are you know people are rooting for you, and that's the reason why they donated. Yeah, of course, and and you know I I can't thank everyone enough. But the thing of it is, I mean, you know, we. You know, we we get hurt a lot, and we're kind of used to it. So I think I have some some tolerance to it. And you know, this was very different. This was this very is different. super. I, I knew this. This was is bad. super different. This yeah. is super different because all right, you know, people get your finger in a bandsaw, or you, you hit your finger mm. on a on a. You get something in your eye. You you have these shop accidents that you're trying, trying, trying to. Uh, prevent or or right. minimize you're wearing your ppe you're wearing your you know you're wearing your clothes correctly you're not dangling your hair in the in the in the grinders you're not you're you're taking care of these things that are protecting you from having to be in the situation where you're going to have to go to the medical attention you don't expect to be riding i can't tell you how much i enjoy being driven I if I don't like driving, I never like driving. My sister's the same way. We like to put our feet up. We like to put the no, seat back. We like to be driven, and I'm, I'm exactly happy. The opposite. I'm happy, dude. dude I, listen, if, if I my wife drives too much on the weekends, I drive because I feel like she drives too much anyway. Yeah. Anytime she offers to drive, 
I thank her because mm-hmm. I love to be a passenger. So to be up in this relaxed position as a passenger and something coming through your roof and oh, yeah. potentially potentially paralyzing you is a freak accident that is like is terrifying. It really is. And I mean I'm I'm ex- the exact opposite from you. I love to drive. I love cars. Um I like being in control, frankly. And right. you know I, I thought about it a lot, and I'm thinking, geez, you know, if I was driving, it would have been her that got hit. And you might have been going faster, and you would have missed the missed the branch. Yeah, let's, maybe. Let's, let's be, but let's like be the, clear. these are hypotheticals. I mean, I well, you, you I know, better but believe I'm I would have been going faster. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing you. I see you. You're <laughs> you're slick. You got the whole look going on. I'm sure that you don't drive below the limit. I have a feeling you would have outrun the the, the branch. So I like to think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's be clear. I think you made a mistake by being a passenger. How do you like that? <laughs> just kidding. That's, Obviously, I'm just kidding. That's so, a hot take. so, so, yeah, hot take. So, so, you know, <laughs> and this brings me to this brings me to, um, you know, it happened in July, yeah. and now we saw each other in in October, and I made a joke. Uh, about when I sa- said your name, and then you instead of turning your head, you turn your whole body, which is not too far off. You are still no. very stiff. You're very, very stiff. stiff. Oh yeah. What's the pain level like now? Um. So if it was at a ten, you know, on the day and for the week afterwards, because I was in a neck brace for a week, and which was which sucked, you know, because you 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 pr- you pretty much don't use your neck muscles. So having been out of the brace after that, which the doctor said. So I had a very non, like, no bullshit doctor. He said, listen, you don't need that. It's not doing you any good. Take it off. Um, We could take another picture, and I can waste your money if you want, but I can tell you that you're young, and this particular injury should heal by itself. So I'm thankful for that guy. So, you know, right now the pain is negligible. You know, I I can manage it. Um, it's, it's not as bad as it was, but it's certainly not great. You know, I can, I, it's, it's more than anything, it's stiffness. I can't turn my head past, you know, you know, probably 50% of what you can, if you look to your left or you look to your right, you know, I can't do that full turn. You know, cause I could see that. I could see that when, when I saw you and it's definitely one of those things that was surprising because you know, if you were to say, I'm, you know, I'm just going to work on, you know, whatever, you know, if you're going to work on stock removal or you're going to work on stuff that's very easy to use the, uh, you know, when you're forging, your back and your neck and your arm is very much part of the situation. Yeah, to a degree. I don't use my neck a lot in forging. Obviously, I use my no, arm but I mean, a lot. but I mean, you're you're using your arm and your back. I mean, and and when you're when you're when you're forging, you are your your neck is going up and down on your spine. Yes, but forward and back, up and down, aren't an issue. It's left right. Oh, for that me. okay. All right. So but, like, and, and I you're... was I was able to forge pretty soon afterwards. I would say I, I can't remember. I I we did a hammer in at uh, Jesse's. You know, another one of the PA guys. And a bunch of us got together, and it, I don't think it was too long afterwards. I want to say it was like August, September, probably not even quite September. And, I mean, I did a little bit of forging, and, you know, I didn't overdo it, but I also didn't have any problems either. That's good. Well, yeah, so, I mean, I was so pleased. Did they, so you, you've had physical therapy, or you're just, you're just kind of riding it out? or No, I was riding it out for a long time because 
I was operating based on my doctor's recommendation, which was till this point, it's going to be healing. After that, you should be okay. So I waited to the time when I should be okay, which is pretty much, mm, I think, mid-October. And I hadn't had any considerable advancements, and physical therapy sounds expensive. Yeah. So what I did is I, I did some research, and actually, I have to thank uh, Keith of Shipwright Skills because it wasn't long after um, Maker Camp. And right. I obviously hadn't done anything to that point. And he recommended TENS therapy, which is, um, oh, I can't remember the acronym, transcutaneous electrical simulation, something like that. And uh, he, he described it to me as like getting a massage on the inside. Whoa. <laughs> Keith so, Mitchell. Yeah, Keith Mitchell. It's basically electrical impulses that, you know, cause your muscle to contract. Because it occurred to me that by this point, if everything healed the way it was supposed to, my only pain and stiffness was coming from muscle issues. So it kind of made sense to me, and I did a little bit of research, and I looked at some units. And it turns out that um, it's relatively inexpensive to get into. And I say, like, relatively inexpensive, like 50 bucks for a unit. Um, so I, I picked one up, and I've been doing it. And I don't th- – it's not, it's not helping super fast, but it's also not helping at all. I mean – is that helping at all? No, 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 no. It's it's been helping a little bit, but not as much as I would have imagined. However, right. it's also showing some minor results. So I think that if I stick with this, it might get me over the uh, the hump without having to go in for thousands. You know, on on what I would imagine is a typical physical therapy for an injury like this. Well, what is it? Is it like a box with like pads that you put on your neck and then it gives Dude, you little pulses? It's like what an iPhone. It? It's like an iPhone and you plug in these little uh, sticky pads, you know, uh, right. these electrical transmitters and you stick them yeah. on the area. And this is a whole thing. They they give you a map of your body and all the different things that you can treat with this unit. And it, it runs the gamut from like indigestion to menstrual pain to, you know, very serious injuries, things like what I have. Um, and other conditions, and apparently, I mean, I don't know how viable it all is, but you can treat all of these things depending on, you know, where you put these pads on your body. It's like acu- acupressure points, right? Huh. So yeah, I just it's... keep sticking it on where it hurts, and I turn it on, and it's, you know, it's a weird sensation, but I've gotten used to it, and I and I kind of like it now. Wow. Yeah. Don't get too comfortable. I mean, that's what, like, I mean, Bruce Lee... Bruce Lee, they think that Bruce Lee died from something similar. One of the factors of his death was he had these, uh, I did, when I was a kid, I got to do a report. We got to do a report on anyone we wanted. Mm. And I got to do, I did one on Bruce Lee and I I went down the rabbit hole of all the conspiracies of how he died and everything like that. And one of of them was, one of them was that he had this like electrical box that he would put pads on his muscles and he would get these, these stimulations to like all of his muscles right and it was like working out without working out it was like this weird like he was basically shocking his muscles to like you know which gave the same results as doing push-ups so he's in all these meetings being like with these little micro shocks all over the place and then there's a lot of people who feel like he might have like shut his hard off with that thing so That's but regardless yeah. the other thing is is it, what is interesting and i was talking to my wife about this a lot is because we have family who's also into holistic medicine and stuff like that and holistic medicine and um people who like to use holistic medicine and she was telling she was talking to me about 
there is a level of intervention that people need to figure out what they want mm-hmm. in terms of like basically the level of intervention that your girl, that your fiance did was to call the ambulance <laughs> because that's like, it's <laughs> like, okay, I can walk it off or I need to, sti- <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there are these levels of intervention where, yeah, holistic is good and everything like that, but you have to know your levels of what all of a sudden it's like, maybe I need some real medicine. Yeah. 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 At, 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 at that point, patchouli oil wasn't going to help me out a hell yeah, of a lot. No yep. patchouli oil. Very good with the patchouli oil. Okay. So listen, I want to get back to, it. I want to get back to you. Yeah. One of the things about you that's so fascinating is, and it's very similar to a lot of my guests, is you have this uh, this background in industrial design. Mm-hmm. Talking to Tomer last week, uh, which was fascinating in terms of industrial design. Also, when I think about your work, I think of Don Wynn a lot because you both have this connection to racing cars and stuff like that. When I look at your work, I see the design is very slick. It's very sleek. It's very, you have more of a background in design than you did that came into when you became a knife maker. When you were growing up as a kid, what made you want to get into visual arts? Well, those two things are kind of disconnected for me personally. It's funny you bring up Don because we both have a background in engineering. Huh. And so he was in, uh, I believe, mechanical engineering, right? He was building cars in college, which right. I, w- I didn't touch. However, for a long time, starting when I was a boy, I loved model rockets. And I, and I built these. I, oh, I must have built hundreds of rockets over, over my lifespan. And I, I was at it for about a good 15 years. Up until I started art school, so that was sort of the the cha- the, the shift change for me. Um, but it, it came from this obsession with fire, which for me was uh, as a very young boy, and it it that sort of transitioned into rocketry um, in a really interesting way. And I, I spent a long time building these things. So not only was it a craft, you know, I was I was building things with my hands, and I was using balsa wood, and I was using you know, uh, cardboard tubes for the, for the, for the airframes. And, um, you know, I was into aerospace and this, this kind of progressed as I got older and the rockets get larger and larger and larger. And before you know it, the last rocket I built before I went into art school, I went to the school of visual arts. I started in 2009. I built a rocket that was four inches in diameter, um, a little over 11 feet tall. Jesus. Yeah. Um, the airframe was made out of carbon fiber that I laid up myself over mandrels that I had constructed in order to do for this purpose. And there was uh, onboard avionics. There was barometric altimeters. There was accelerometers. Uh, there was uh, black powder charges that would deploy the, the drogue in the main parachute. Very complicated things. The, the solid fuel engines, the solid fuel motors that I didn't make personally, but a number of companies did, provided enough power to loft a Volkswagen bug into the air. Like we're talking hundreds of pounds of thrust. Wait a second. Back up. Go ahead. When did where did you learn how to do this? This was a very slow progression. I learned this from building rockets, flying them, failing, learning from what I did, speaking to others because there was a lot of camaraderie, camaraderie just like with the knife community, the rocketry community. I've made a lot of friends over the years. 
And, you know, they would help you out because they wanted to see you succeed, right? They wanted to see you get over that hump and learn the next thing, which might sound familiar to a lot of you. And so, you know, I had books and things on it, and I did a lot of research, and I was obsessed because... You know, when I take a liking to something, I have to know every facet of it. You know, whether or not I can execute it at the time, having the knowledge is really important to me. What's the goal when you're making a rocket? What is the goal of that specific rocket? What is your perfect flight? Well, the perfect flight is a successful one, right? Like you get it back and there's no damage. But for me, it was always about the performance. It was always about going higher and going faster. And so back to this last rocket that I built, it it flew to an uh, altitude of 37,000 feet and a maximum velocity of Mach 2.2. So Mach 2.2 in miles per hour is a little over 1,400. 1,400 miles an hour. Yeah. So it's fast enough to essentially bubble the paint on the leading edges of the fins. Wait... Now, how so? How high is thirty-two thousand feet for like thirty-seven thousand feet? Is sorry, uh, I'm sorry about that. I, I know no, this. Okay. I know. I know. The hilarious thing is, is like you meet you immediately really pull back that four thousand, five thousand feet. No, no, like, no. Wait no, a second. No, me over here. Yeah, I don't. Want to, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, I apologize. Not at all. Uh, it's it's almost a mile higher in altitude than an airliner cruises at. How Jesus Christ! So how big is that rocket? Well, so four inches in diameter, 11 feet tall, okay, it's a okay. relatively small craft compared to, you know, um, professional aerospace. Like, I'm, I was an amateur, you know. I mean, we were all amateurs. But with that being said, I knew people that achieved far more performance than I did and spent quite literally six figures building rockets that would go in, nearly into space. Now, would you—now, a couple things. Okay. How would you get them back? Because obviously, if it's going all that high, would you have like a track? Are they do they have stages or how do they Not how always. do you get them back? Well, so we would have radio transmitters um, inside that would allow us to get a, a close, you know, approximation as to where they would start to come down. Because you have to remember, especially out in the desert, you know, that this rocket I'm speaking of flew in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada, and they have windows to a hundred thousand feet, so you could easily land across a mountain range and never see it again. So you, you, you almost have to consider, you know, upper level winds and all the all this crazy stuff that I mean I never got into seriously enough to really use as a tool, you know, to to inform what I was doing. You know, I was kind of just I mean at the end of the day I was always the kid that just wanted to blow stuff up. So a failure was almost more interesting to me than a success. See, I'm interested in the fact that in my mind, you answered a question. In my mind, I'm thinking you're this kid in like rural New Jersey, you know, no. shooting rockets into the sky, and then maybe they're landing in someone's backyard. You're well, that in the desert. Plenty. That happened plenty. I mean, I, I I landed a lot of rockets on people's roofs and things, and then I had to write a very polite letter asking if I can go get it down. Uh, yeah, that happened more than once. So were there some rockets that took you so long that by the time you were finished, you just did? Because, I mean, they can't really be used. Can they be used again? Oh, like yeah. The one... Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've made rockets that flew dozens of times. And at 11 feet long, 4 inches wide, shooting a mile into the air, 14, 1,400 miles an hour or whatever it is, do you have to worry about, like, 
like aviate do you have to worry about hitting planes you have to worry right. about like yes. faa rules absolutely i mean even so the black rock situation was sort of an outlier because that's extremely high performance that you wouldn't normally see um i used to f- belong to a club that was called metra and uh i believe that stood for the metropolitan rocketry association and they flew out of pine island new york so it was a sod farm and we used to communicate with the FAA in order to know that, you know, uh, flights through the area would be halted through this window. And that's why I called it a window to a certain altitude, because they would only allow that for a certain period of time. Because obviously we can't be holding up commercial flights. You know, we're just yeah. a bunch of guys out in the field, you know, shooting rockets off. So, you know, it, it, the fact that they ever worked with us at all was kind of remarkable to me. So you would call up the FAA, say we're part of this club and we want to shoot rockets off at Pine Island. Pine Island, by the way, shout out to Pine Island. That's not too far from our old shop, Center for Metal Arts in Florida, New York. Also, Black Dirt Country, Dave Mm -hmm. Cordilla, we're talking about you. Black Dirt Country, that's where the onion capital of New York. That's right. I think. That's right. So, so, so you had to call up. I find this all fascinating. So you call up the FAA, say we're this club and we're going to be shooting rockets off at this port and they're going to give you a time where you can do it? They basically they like, say you got to stop. You got to get everything out of the sky by this time because we're going to route flights back through. And they're holding that spot for you, or you, they just happen to know that that's a clear area, and they're not. They're holding be it. They're, they're rerouting, I would imagine, because you know flights don't simply stop. I mean, JFK wasn't that far away. You know, by by as the crow flies. You know, when you're a plane. JFK is a pretty short flight, so you know I imagine that they would just bring planes around the area. You know, for that short period of time. For, what was it? How much time did you have? Um, I remember it being somewhere between an hour at the most, maybe a little more than that. And as little as 15 minutes. If you wanted to go to 100,000 feet, you better get it, you know, get up there and get down in a hurry because, you know, they got they got a lot of flights that they have to reroute. Because oh if you think about the stratosphere and the mesosphere as layers, which is exactly what they are, if you're going that deep into all the layers they got to reroute a lot of flights and that's just not commercial that could be that could be federal that could be government stuff going on that we don't even know about i so how old are you when you started this um uh i want to say i was a child when i got my first one as a gift you know it was a kit that you build so i, yeah. I must have been 6 or 7 and when was the last when was when did you build that 11 footer i was 18 Holy shit! So you so this is a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I. So yeah, that brings me to engineering because this was something that I quickly realized aerospace wasn't going to be for me, and I went to art school. Why? Why did I go to art school? No, why was it not for you? I just well, there's, so there's two reasons, and and one of them's political, and one of them's practical. I never had the head for the amount of math that would be required to be in aerospace engineering properly, right? Hmm. I, it was just not for me because math was my worst was my worst subject and science was one of my favorites. Hmm. So, and and those are kind of antithetical in that way. If you're good at one and not the other, you either got to learn or it's not for you, right? And and I I just never had the head for math. Well, what was well, the political reason? Well, so you know, by the time I was in high school, um, I became a lot more politically involved and I learned about the world around me, as I think anyone should. And it occurred to me. By that point, that unless I got my dream job, right, which right. would have been JPL, Na- uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that seemed so fucking cool to me. 
That's what I wanted to do. But that's a very small amount of people that end up in aerospace. All the people that I spoke to that had practical jobs were working in defense. Right. Gotcha. And to be perfectly frank, I didn't love the idea of going to work every day, building rockets, which is something I really loved and, like, in my heart, like, had such a special place so that the government could take him and put bombs on the end. Right. And I, we know, I, I, and we know where those are going. Yeah. It, it's per, it makes perfect That's an excellent reason to, to take away your love, to yeah. take away your love of something. And I couldn't live with myself doing that. So hmm. I decided to get away from it entirely, and, and I haven't done it since. Wow. Do, do, you, do you still have the rockets? I have parts of some. I have part of that big one, and, uh, you know, it's kind of just taking up space. Like, it's a very impractical thing to have uh, outside of using it. Um, I'll probably so you, hang on to it, though. So you don't have any more love for you. You don't have any more love for it. You, with what's going on now with aerospace, I mean, what what Elon Musk is doing right now is so fascinating. I, I would imagine that it's it still interests you. It does interest me, and I do still have a love for it, just not such that I'm going to practice it anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of taken a turn. You know, I was a boy when 9-11 happened, and uh, we weren't allowed to fly for a long time. Right. Just because of the FAA, they just said, no, you know, you're yeah, not, yeah. You're not we're, nobody's doing anything for a while. So, I mean, I, I totally understood that, but I think it was a rude awakening for me. And I wasn't so young that I don't remember 9-11, but I wasn't old enough to fully process what right. happened. Sure. And, you know, I think at the end of the day... I got like a rude awakening to the way the world is and that, you know, it's not quite as optimistic as I thought. Right. That's very interesting. Uh, you know, that, that I, so, so that put, that takes you out of the sky and into, into mechanical engineering for cars or? No, not at you? all. I never touched mechanical and I never actually built cars either. Um, from that point, I went directly into the school of visual arts. And what were you, what was your, what, what was your plan from there? Well, I didn't know. I knew I always loved to paint, and I was always into making things, and, and, and none of these things struck me as a career, right? Like, I never had any aspirations to do this professionally because, you know, it was almost omnipresent, right? Like, I always made things with my hands, and I always, you know, drew, and I always painted, and I always found this as an expression that I really enjoyed, but nobody ever pitched it to me as a career, right? Right. And when it came to the point where I had to decide what a career was, because that's very much how it was pitched to me, you know, after high school, you go to college, that's what you do. Right. And so I'm like, all right, well, I can, I, 90% of it, I want no interest. I, I have no interest in. So what do I like? Well, you know, my grandfather um, started and ran for a very long time his own advertising agency. Advertising agency. And so he basically started doing graphic design at its at its most basic form, we're talking like paste-ups and we're talking comp boards and everything's cut mm. and glued by hand and typography was set by hand. And, you know, that's kind of how I learned it because I spent a lot of time with him. And this was something that, you know, that was my introduction to it. So I thought that's the way it was, right? right? I get to art school and I find that wasn't so. But, you know, that's sort of a little bit further down the line. You know, it's typeset is very in my family. Typeset is very important. My father was a graphic designer, and he mm -hmm. did books. And growing up, my sisters and I loved 
typography. We love fonts. We loved different, we made our own font. Like my sisters and I have like our own font that we use often. And that's mm-hmm. usually like, if you see the kind of stuff that I do, it's usually the, my, the font that we all kind of do at the same time. And, right. it, and now my my daughter is very uh, interested in fonts and that typeset is just, it's such a lost art because it's just, there. it is, there is something about that. We, we, did you ever think about like, what did you think you were going to, you wanted to do with the, I didn't know. I, I knew I wanted to be creative and I knew I wanted to make money because I was going to need a right. lot of it. You know, I went to school, but nobody was paying my tab. So right. I had to figure out how to how to fund this. And I had a sense that if I showed up and I worked really hard and and I gave a shit because I think already a lot of my classmates didn't. I thought that, you know, a job would be there for me somewhere because there's plenty of agencies in New York. There's, you know, plenty of small studios. I wasn't interested in advertising at all because commercial design, you know, I, I, I won't get into it. But anyway. Go ahead. You can get into it. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it, it lacks it, some know, soul. It, 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 it lacks a lot of soul. And more than that, you know, it, you're, you're basically answering to people who can't design. Right. You know, it's like hiring a plumber and, and okay, show me three different ways you might, you might fix this pipe. It's like, no, no, no. You hire him. He's the professional. He's going to fix it. And you leave him alone. That's the right. way it should be, right? Right. It's not but, the, but that's that. That's not the case. There's a lot of situations like that. I've been in a, a number of situations where actually we uh, we've been you know talking to book people and stuff, working on books and stuff like that. Mm. Um, my business partner was just like, "Don't fucking listen to these people because they they don't they don't know what they're talking. They don't know how to tell your story. They don't know how to talk about. They they it's I know exactly what you're saying. It's yeah. the idea that it's like by committee, and a lot of these committee people don't really know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, designed by the by committee ruined many things over the years. I mean, it, it, because the, a group of people can't have a singular voice, essentially, right. right? Right. So you're at this school of visual arts. I have a lot of friends of mine who went to school of visual arts. A mm. ton of. I actually, I have probably about ten or fifteen friends of mine who went to school of visual arts. When you went to the school of visual arts, what was it like having Jimmy DeResta as a teacher of yours? <laughs> yeah. So you know, I didn't know that he had a YouTube channel even, you know, like when I met him, he was just the professor. I didn't, I I had no prior knowledge. Was he, would you call him professor? No, 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 no. Jimmy was so laid back and he wouldn't even, okay. So he would give assignments, right. That the class would, you know, everybody would have their solution and then bring it in, you know, next time around. And even if somebody did a blatantly shitty job and completely missed the mark and didn't really even grasp the technique he was trying to teach, he wouldn't, you know, be that rough with them. You know, he would tell them how they can improve, but he wouldn't say, no, you're wrong. Right. And I think that's pretty important because I had plenty of teachers. Oh, my God. There there were teachers at the School of Visual Arts that if your work sucked during a critique, they'd light it on fire while it's hanging right. on the wall with their with their they pull their lighter up. You know, like it was it was pretty rough in some cases with Jimmy. Like he I I think he had this intrinsic knowledge that if if he shit on you now, you may not try again. You know what I mean? So he let's go ahead. Describe. I want you I want to try to we have an idea of what Jimmy looks like. He's got the jeans on. He had the hat on. He got two pair of sunglasses on his head when he's (laughs) in school, when he's in school. How is he? How is he presenting himself as a exactly teacher? the same? He's always exactly been he's, he's always been Jimmy, you know. He's always been, and I think that's why we trusted him, you know, because he was never trying to be anybody else, you know. And I think huh. that I recognized in him, 
the thing that I always knew about myself, which is this that we love to make things. And mm. the why doesn't almost doesn't even matter at the end of the day. You know, we what, can apply it to whatever we want. What was the class that you took with him? What was the name? Yeah, I believe the title in the roster was Intro to 3D Design. There you go, a sculpture class. It is a sculpture class because 3D design is kind of a misnomer because everybody thinks it's like, you know, 3D rendering, like in a computer, because there were so many students that had only known computers. But I hate computers. I hate them to this day. I feel like my hands are cut off. I don't like using them, you know. I much that and and that's why I every knife I I make, I draw first. Because I want to see it. I want to see it full scale. I want to hold the paper. You know, I want to cut it up and I want to maybe change the handle and like see how I can, you know, modify the design. Like in a computer, I I don't feel like I have a sense of the real world scale. And that was always the way, no matter what I made. 3D design is was the sculpt the introduction sculpture class that I took back in 1992. And I was so stupid when I read the thing. I could, as a freshman getting in art classes, it was really hard. They were all mm. booked up by upperclassmen. So I got into 3D design and I didn't really know that it was a sculpture class. I thought it was, to be honest with you, I thought it was drawing in 3D. Like I didn't really, uh-huh. I had no idea. So I show up to the shop with the bandsaws and the welders and stuff like that. And it was much more, uh, I, I, lo- I mean, obviously I loved it, but I, I, I I find it fascinating that Jimmy was a teacher because I can imagine that he was extraordinarily supportive. And I love the idea that he was very playful and not to yeah. didn't take him too self, self too seriously. I'm also being very, I know he's listening right now. He does. He listens on a Friday. Listen, all of what you're saying is true, but at the same time, he wouldn't, he wouldn't bullshit you either. You know, he would, he would help you get better. If he knew that there was room for improvement, which, of course, there was. We were, you know, <laughs> practically kids. But, you know, he, he didn't do it in such a way where you were discouraged, you know. Huh. Yeah. And he had, a, what, he had a YouTube channel at the time. I assume so. Yeah, I mean, I, I've right. seen some of his early there videos back when he was on the Lower East Side. But, bef- like, that was only after I took the class and understood more about him. I mean, prior to that, I'm like, oh, all right, this guy, Jimmy DeResta, is teaching a class. It's just like anybody else that was teaching at that point, right? Like I didn't, I didn't th- have any any knowledge. How do you think his classes informed your work? Do you think that there was you took anything away that you take from him that you took from him then that you can that you can see now in the way you work? Yeah, I think you know I I think that not being afraid to fail is a, is a really big part of that. You know, because I I never went in with whatever it is that I had made thinking that, Oh, the teacher's not going to like it. You know, like I, it wasn't even for that. I think that he, Hmm. he gave us the agency to fail because at the end of the day, he, he knew that that's one of the best teachers. He, you know, he never Hmm. discouraged experimentation, no matter how off the wall it, it could possibly be. Um, yeah, no, I mean, not just the class, but I mean, all the years afterwards. And I watch, you know, every one of his videos and, you know, I always paid attention to what he would say, because I think that there was always something to glean from that. Uh, you know, he was he was a huge inspiration for me. There was a couple of professors there that really changed the course um, of my professional career, if I can say that. Um, and 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 frankly, they kept me out of agencies because I think that I was given the sense that I I I can do my own thing. I had something to say that was mine. What so? What was what was the other the other te- what are the other things that the teacher the other teacher showed you that really made you? So the other teacher was James Victoria, and I I think a lot of people 
may have heard of him or know who he is, but James Victoria's, you know, he started as a poster designer. And he was very, it almost seems to be like failing to say avant-garde because it doesn't really even describe what it is that he does. But these days, I mean, he's more of a creative coach. And I think that that really hit me really hard. I it, When I took his class, it hit me so hard because, you know, he, he will posit that we all have creativity and the trick is hanging on to it as we get older, right? And I think Picasso said something to that effect as well. Looking at his work right now, I find a lot of similarities between... There's some image, imagery that reminds me of uh, Basquiat. There's a lot oh, yeah. of imagery that has a lot to do with... Um, kind of poster art or graffiti art or, you know, almost stencily. They're very, he uses a lot of fonts. Yeah. He's, it's, everything's very like pen and ink with a brush. It's very, it's very classic. I mean, there's a classic quality to it that like we were talking about before in terms of agencies don't have any soul. I mean, this, this work has an incredible amount of soul. Yeah. I mean, he he was probably one of the only teachers that taught a design class in the School of Visual Arts that told me, agencies will not value you right well this work this work is very there's one of the things if you look up james victory uh v-i-c-t-o-r-e you'll see that it's all very much along the lines of it's very similar to um uh calligraphy in the sense of like there's no going back with an eraser it's very there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of um in, being impromptu there's a lot of taking very big risks and big chances and being very direct not you know sketching and then fixing the lines it's very very one directional work in terms of you know there's a fearlessness to it honestly absolutely there there's you know there's no such thing as mistakes he he actually has a, a book out now called feck perfection and it's it's honestly a Bible. Anyone that does anything even mildly creative should absolutely buy it. Or if you don't and you want to be creative, I think you should buy it. It's It has so much value and so many tips that will help you see your own creativity, whatever that is, because it's different it for is... everyone, right? It's very not. It's very unapologetic work, and mm-hmm. and and it's beautiful. It has a, a very. It has a typeset quality to it. It has a. It has a. It, it's definitely not sculpture. It's definitely like no. you know, like almost like printmaking to a certain degree. It's just beautiful. But I can see how that that that's a kind of that kind of work has a confidence in it that I would imagine that really kind of. Right. brings it out of you because he fosters a confidence in yourself you know he says right. that you if you don't believe in you then how can you really expect anyone else to it's almost like it's it, it almost is is he doesn't put himself in a vulnerable situation with this work like it is it's intentionally meant to be very um spontaneous almost and, mm. and it is there is a there's a spontaneity in it that is very much I, I that's awesome. I can see how that would be very um give you some sort of freedoms and liberties and confidence in your work. Right. Well, I mean, especially at that time, I mean, he was speaking my language because I always railed against authority and to hear someone validate those feelings I always had, it was extremely empowering. So you got James Victory who's giving you empowering feelings. He's giving you got the loving hand of Jimmy Deresta <laughs> guiding you along the way. Yeah. At what point do you decide I'm going to start to make knives? 
Well, it took a while longer. Um, I, I started a business right out of college doing um, props and stage design and uh, things like that. I was I wanted to build things, and so you know that was a, a hell of a ride. I had a shop uh, in New Jersey, and I I made I did uh, set work for theaters, and I did props for all manner of things, and I uh, most notably I did um, these massive. I don't even remember how long. It was like 15-foot-tall faux columns out of, hmm. like, wiggle board and, and, and pine and, you know, all lightweight materials painted to look like stone for uh, right. D. Snyder's son, who was doing a comical rendition of Titus Andronicus at the Beckett Theater. Whoa, D. Snyder's son. Yeah. You know, it's got to it's gotta be bad when you have to be referred to as D. Snyder's son. Yeah, that's, a, that's your fucking claim. D. Snyder is the lead man of Twisted Sister. Yeah, uh, and you know he's still an icon to a certain degree. Of course, I, you know, and I, I, I don't need to go into like who was probably bankrolling the project, but uh, well, you know, I mean, you said I, it in the beginning. Of course, of course. <laughs> and I went, you know, I went to the show, and it was it was really rewarding. But here's here's where it changed for me. All of this work that I did, and I take my work really seriously, no matter what it is. All of this work that I would put into a project would get thrown into a dumpster on the west side after the show was over. Right. And right. I'm like, what the hell? Like, that, that, was, a, that was a part of my life that I'm not going to get back. Yeah. And, and I kind of didn't know what I was doing for a, a little while. You know, and I had a, I had a uh, you know, I, I, I cringe at the term quarter life crisis, but that's really what it was. It was around that time. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to kill myself no matter what the work is. So what should the work be? You mean you're going to work really hard? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to work really hard. This is clear. I'm not literally, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be. But it, uh, it got to the point where I wanted my life's work to mean something to me. You know, I'm not saying that anyone that does stage work it isn't meaningful. I mean, I met some incredible people, you know, stagehands and other such that you know worked in the industry and they're lifers because they love it. Um, I think craftspeople people are all the same. At the end of the day, and we're talking, you know, whether you're a union machinist or you're a cook or if you're a knife maker, you know, we all absolutely care. We would give our own blood, right, to improve our work, right? And for me, I decided that I wanted to make tools, and I wanted to make tools that people cared about. And it was right, right around this time when I was shutting my business down because I kind of had – there was a, a number of reasons for that. My landlord was a colossal asshole and was overcharging me, you know, because he saw a kid that didn't know what he was doing, really, business-wise, right. and uh, let, let me take advantage. So I was I was paying out the ass for rent. Finally had to call that, and my um, girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, we moved to Portland, Oregon. And that's where I took an apprenticeship at a company called Portland Razor. And we were making straight razors— you know, for shaving, right? Uh, to to a very high degree. Uh, started by Scott Miyako. Uh, I was taught by Hunter Lee. He uh, basically was the head man there for a long time because Scott was uh, fighting cancer, and so he was out of the shop for quite some time. And not it wasn't until towards the end of my time there that he actually came back. He beat it successfully and came right back to work, um, which you know hmm. was a quality that I very much admired. 
And, you know, we were doing water jet profiles and heat treating O1 in a tiny little even heat kiln and, you know, quenching in a little bucket of oil uh, in an ammo can. Uh, and it was a very small little Portland shop, and you could smell coffee being roasted coming in through the open garage door. And it was very – it was the change I needed at the time, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, that was supposed to be an apprenticeship that led to a full-time position. I didn't take the full-time position, but I took these skills that I had learned there, which was really the first, my first exposure to properly heat treating steel, confirming hardness, you know, sharpening on a whetstone, which knives and straight razors are very different, you know, in, in that respect. But, um, I wanted to take those things and apply it to something that, uh, meant more to me, which was cooking. When you were doing the straight razors, were, were were they? I mean, were they moving a lot of knives, a lot of straight razors? Yeah, I mean, like, like, I mean, I don't know exactly how many now. Uh, I know that towards the end of my time there, they they thought I was doing a good enough job where I was doing the production work. So, like, where were they selling their straight razors razors to? Um, online and to local shops, I believe. But they weren't like I mean because I know I talking to a lot of barbers who always ask me for straight razors. A lot of them use, you know, disposable razors because you don't have to sharpen them. Well, that's right. You don't have to sharpen them, and then it's easier to just toss that blade rather than you know stick it in the barbicide because right. you have to have a perfectly clean germ-free razor to stick on the next yeah. guy's face. You can't like yeah. you know a, a fixed blade, so to speak. You know, it doesn't really scan in the barber world. So right. Um, I think a lot of it was geared towards home use and encouraging oh, okay. men to, you know, shave that way because it's kinder to the environment. You're not throwing blades in the trash. Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of fosters a sensibility of having a good tool and caring for it, which I think really made a big impression on me. When I was very young, when we would stay at my grand, my mother's father's place, my grandfather's, my grandmother's house, mm. I would wake up early with him. I was always waking up early. He would wake up at four thirty, and I and I was, I could hear him kind of moving around. So I went to go see what he was doing, and I would wake up, and he and I would wake up together at four thirty. I'd go and watch him shave with a straight razor. Mm. And it fascinated me and terrified me because he would have a little, he had a little puck of soap and then he yep. had the little thing and he mm-hmm. was, he was, you know, really scrub. I mean, he did, it was just like, it was almost like out of a cartoon because he was doing it every morning. He was using a straight razor and he would, he had a belt and he'd kind of strop the straight razor and then I oh, would yeah. watch him. I would watch him and I would take off all the foam and then there'd be this clean skin below but I was looking at this thing. I was like, "What is going on here?" And all, I, and I could hear the. I remember the noise, the noise that it made when it went across his face. Yeah. But at the same time, I was so scared because it was so sharp. But I didn't even want to touch it because I was like, I, it just seemed very like I've never shaved with a straight razor. And it, to be honest with you, it scares the living shit out of me because it just <laughs> yeah. seems just. It's just precarious. Ridic- it's precarious. You can cut yourself badly if you're not paying attention. You know, there's certain methods that you, uh, you know, there's certain ways to shave that you absolutely have to adhere to, and you have to pull the skin tight when you do it. And to be honest with you, I couldn't be bothered. As 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 a personal, you know, hygiene uh, aspect, I, I I don't even shave at all anymore. I I just yeah. trim. You know, I, I it's just not for me. But I appreciated the knowledge that they gave me because honestly, it was hands on. And it was every single day I went in and did this. But, you know, at the end of the day, I couldn't live on what I was making. So of course. I needed to make but, it happen, right? But they were grinding them there too, right? 
Oh yeah, I was grinding. So so it was on like a contact wheel. Uh, yes, yes. There was a jig uh, such that you can rest it on a central point, and essentially you'd go back and forth. Oh, okay. But it would sort of maintain that hollow, and once you start the hollow, it's pretty easy to keep that uh, in situ, right? I mean, it was like at least a three-quarter hollow. I don't know that they were doing full hollows, but, um, you know, it's once you get the the groove... You can you can stay in that and and apply small pressures here and there, just like grinding a flat bevel, really. Do they make left-handed and right-handed razors? Because I would imagine that because it's one, it's a hollow on one side and then curled on the other side. I would imagine that you would need a left-handed one and a right-handed one, depending on what you are, right? So these were these had the same hollow on the on both sides, and I and I don't know the proper term for that. Uh, I'm sure someone else can can fill you in so it's a so it's a basically an s grind it <laughs> it's it's like a compound grind to the point where the edge is incredibly thin um and that's crazy yeah i mean i went in there and i didn't get to touch a grinder for a little while my my first day my first month almost was whetstones hmm you know, and and how to set that up and how to get a proper bevel and how to bring it up to the right grit, which was like, I want to say 10 to 12,000 grit. Like, I mean, they went up to the real high polished stones. Oh. But so it, they it, were... It, ha- sorry? No, I was going to say they're hand, hand sharpening everything by stones. Absolutely. Hmm. Which which I do today. I, I Every every knife I've ever made, I, I hand sharpen to finish. You leave Portland. Do you guys stay in Portland, or you move back to PA? Or we were in Portland for a little while, but Portland's got um, some features that uh, you know. At the end of the day, we didn't we didn't want to stick around. Um, you mean major depression? No, I don't even know about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, here it's neither I mean, here nor come there. Come on, it's neither here nor there. I mean, we left. I think we left twenty early twenty sixteen. Yeah. Uh, like February, we drove back, you know, we kind of did like a little cross country thing. Um, but you know, Portland isn't super kind to outsiders and, and, you know, and I was like looking for other jobs at a certain point. I did a lot of fabrication work, um, over my time there in a couple of different places, but people look at your resume and they see New Jersey and they're like, uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll pass. Because really? they want to support people that went to OSU, you know, they want to support people that are from Oregon. Hmm. And I don't necessarily fault it, but at the same time, you know, talent is talent. You know, are you really going to kind of box people out like that? But, you wow. know, what, whatever the case may be. Yeah, we head back and we find Philadelphia. See, that makes it so strange to me because, like, if you were looking for someone with a specific type of skills, yeah, I would find it very hard to 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 say, I can't hire you because you're not from around here. It seems like you don't then you then you don't want an employee that bad. Yeah, and I, maybe That's they so didn't weird. need one that bad, but hmm. you know I'll bet you they do now. Ugh. Yeah. So you move back to Philadelphia, mm. and then what's the next step? You're in Philadelphia. So, so I had already started playing with knives before we left Portland, and I was really just you know to be frank, like handling knives. You know, I didn't I didn't do blade grinding and bevel grinding to any serious degree because I was so inexperienced, and I was just basically trying to take it one piece at a time, and and learn that. But I was part of a makerspace that I had also worked at, so I got a free membership, and I brought a grinder in. My first grinder was a 2x48. I bought it when I had my prop business still. 
because um, I it was kind of something that interested me even then before Portland. You know, I saw James Oatley's work, which was I think my first um, exposure to like really high end stuff, and it was kind of mesmerizing. It was it was something that I didn't even know existed. Right, it was this whole world that I found. I'm interested that you would mention James Oatley because Oatley knives. Uh, Oatley's out of Australia. He makes Sydney. he's kind of almost he's he makes almost like I would say Japanese inspired high oh, end yeah. culinary knives heavily. And he his work has I've seen it in person and I was with Abe mm-hmm. at an event and he showed me one of his one of his knives. They almost have a stylized quality. That is very design. It's very design forward. Mm-hmm. Like his spines swoop up, and he has a, usually a very pronounced heel at the very end. And it is a very like you when you see one of James Oatley's knives, you know it immediately. There's no. It's one of those knife guys who you know. It, it's no question. You know his knives, right. and there is like a design quality to it. So I would imagine that that was a you being into design. I would imagine that would be a big influence. Yeah, it all struck me as very deliberate, and there was no flash. There was nothing that was there that didn't need to be there, and and right. and it struck me that to have a tool that's both beautiful and functional, without any extraneous ornament, if I can say that. You know, um, it, it 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 was the kind of the work I, the want that I wanted to make, and it, it stuck with me the whole time. You know, and of course, I get my grinder and I ruin some perfectly good steel, and I'm like, hmm, you know, there's a lot more to this than that I'm not aware of. So that was the kind of the beginning of my journey. Back to James Oatley, his mm. knives also have an extra degree of terror built in. <laughs> there's something about them when you look at them. That there's almost like a fang quality or a claw quality. They're there's aggressive. a quality there there, but it's not like overt. It's not like one of these gas station knives. It's like there's something in the designs of his knives right. that look a little bit more terrifying than from a you know than you normally see as a culinary knife. Well, it's like a katana, right? It's a it's right. a beautiful piece of work, and there's nothing there that doesn't need to be there. There's nothing there that doesn't have a purpose, but it's inherently scary. Yeah. You know what it's for, and you know what it can do, and I feel like his knives really embodied that. I think that one of the things about design that is always very fascinating is that idea of when you look at something without – Knowing the context, do you get the idea of what it's supposed to be? Actually, mm-hmm. when I was in college, that was my final project as a senior was I was making tools that didn't really have names. You didn't really see them before. But as soon as you looked at them, you could understand what they were meant to do based on the direction or based on where things were. And there was this flowing mo- movement that you can imagine what it was used for. But so that is an interesting part about his work, but also what you were saying, but uh, in regards to the direction and how design really influences how you feel about something. Yeah. So you're so so now what's the next step? You're you got your grinder going, you're ruining steel. When do you take that turn? Well, this was all like pre Portland. So after Portland, I had been at the point where I had I had made some knives with some success and uh, a lot of failure but i i had this this feeling like i think i can get better at this and right. i don't know why i felt that way but i did so by the time we got to portland um or excuse me the by the time we left portland and got to philadelphia um 
she had already gotten a job, a good one, you know, in an agency. Um, it, funny enough, she ended up in graphic design <laughs> not too long after I left graphic design. Hmm. Um, and and I'll, for the record, she's a better designer than I ever was, and I'm always impressed by the work that she does. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that it worked out well because I also don't work well for others uh, at the end of the day. But hmm. I I started making knives, and they were okay. And then I made some more, and they were a little better. And being in Philadelphia, which was probably the first time in my life I timed something well, it was a you know booming food city. More and more chefs became you know hyper popular. More and more yeah. unknown chefs became uh, well renowned for the food that they were making, and I was able to gain a little traction. You know, and every now and then I'd get an order that really got me excited because I'm like, the chef knows what they're doing and they're right. going to tell me if it sucks or if it doesn't. And it was a little bit of this here and there. And it, and it kind of, you know, I made a sale. Maybe I made, a, made another sale and it got to a point where I was getting a little bit more known for making knives. And I, it, it kind of just snowballed from there. And it, I couldn't have done it without Philadelphia. What do you think it is about the food scene in Philadelphia? Because, you know, we know some chefs in Philadelphia. And yeah. there there is something totally different than the in Philadelphia than the food scene in New York. What do you yeah. think it is about Philadelphia? I think it's cultural. I think it's a little bit bigger than the food scene. You know, um, Philadelphia is the city of friendly assholes. And <laughs> if you are full of shit, if you're full of shit, they're going to call you out on it. But if you're genuinely – if you genuinely care about what you're doing – and you try to improve and you're sharing that improvement, they will support you no matter what it is. Hmm. And I think they saw what I was doing and what I wanted to foster with the work I was doing. And, and they said, you know, I say they, the royal they, you know, right. uh, chefs and, and, and the food people at the, you know, that were there at the time and still are. You know, I think that they, they, they want to support you if you care because you essentially at the end of the day want to make the city better with what you're mm. offering. And I think that, you know, I was sort of food industry adjacent and I got to know more and more chefs and I, I would go to a bar and just like chat up the bartender. Oh, is the chef in, you know, kind of really grassroots stuff like that. Um, because I was free to do so. I didn't have a job at the time. I was very fortunate that, you know, as the old saying goes behind every knife maker is a woman with a real job. You know, she was able to support you know, what I was doing and was interested and cared that I was doing something that I, I was really getting better at. So she, hmm. my, you know, Ray, my, my wife now, she fostered that. Hmm. I, I love the idea that you were working with culinary guys in, in, in Philadelphia. One of the things that I think about, especially thinking about the chefs that I've known in Philadelphia, Mark Vetri, mm -hmm. there's a few other guys um, that I've been working with, that I've talked to and, and work with, is there's definitely this sense of, and it has to, it also represents the classic foods of Philadelphia where there is this very, I don't want to say blue collar, but it's much more of approachable. Yeah. The food is very approachable, and then they, it, it's very simple and real and flavorful. But at the same time, um, the food scene has grown from that, this sense of kind of sincerity. It, it seems like right. – I think when you're talking about how they're very honest with you, it's because the food scene seems much more sincere than just doing, um, you know – 
what uh, doing like, you know, the trend of the day in terms of the food. Right. You know, there's not a lot of tweezing going on. You know, they they want to. I my all there's my favorite tweezing. places. There's yeah, tweezing. There's some. There's tweezing. Some. There's, there was there's always going to be somebody with a pair of tweezers. But, you know, at the end of the day, all my favorite places cook you the food that they want to eat. Right. Right. And it's a little bit more rustic, you know, which is a word that I don't love, but it's it's the way it is. It's yeah. it's not overdone and it's not primped up. It's just good ingredients that didn't get fucked up, you know, right? Like it's it's just something that every chef wants to eat themselves, you know, because a lot of times they'll make things that, you know, it's for somebody else. It's not for them in a way. How would you see, see as the culture of Philadelphia influencing your work? Because there is that idea of sincerity, uh, no no uh, nonsense. Yeah. Because you're, I remember when you came to my shop a few years ago. Mm-hmm. A few, I remember you stopped by a few years ago, brought a few knives. Yep. And what I noticed about your work was it was very highly thought. You thought through a lot of design decisions, especially in your handles in terms of colors, in terms of fastening of the handles, mm-hmm. in terms of there was a lot going on. When I say a lot going on, I mean it was very thoughtfully made. I remember when you brought those work and it was all very thoughtful not stuff that you saw off youtube it's not stuff you saw off 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 instagram it definitely felt to me like it was very very thought out and it was very designed forward when you get to philly how does that influence your work you know i think that it probably influenced me in that i wanted to be deliberate and i wanted to be real and i think that in that you find where you're going and what it is you want to say and you know they're they're just knives you know jeff they're just tools i'm not going to talk about them like they're paintings but at the same time if somebody asks me for something i i want to kind of deliver more than they're asking for i want to deliver something that you know it's a tool that they'll fawn over because if if, if they love it then they'll take care of it and it'll serve them well, you know, if it's something that's not interesting or if it's something that if it if it seems as though I didn't care when I made it, then, you know, they probably won't care when they're cleaning it off at the end of the night or whatever it may be. Of course, they're just tools. But when you're actually designing a, ni- a knife that has your signature on it or when I say signature, I'm not just saying a touch mark. I'm mm-hmm. talking about like something that, you know, this is from Steve, like mm-hmm. I, your bat wing knives. I know there's a quality to them that I see when I see a lot of your work. I see there's a signature style of decisions that you've made over the body of your work that's very apparent. What I think is, is I think that it can be these beautiful objects, but at the same time, it has something like Oatley's perfect example. If yeah. he straightened the spine out, and if he didn't make the, if he didn't make that heel so high at the bottom where the where the where you you know where the ricasso is, it w- might not be as you know, it might not be as noticeable that it was his. I mean, there's a ferocity about his work that you know it when you see it. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you, how Philadelphia had any influence on the decisions that you made. I think it remains to be seen. I think that's still kind of boiling down, right? I'm trying to figure out the features of the work that I've done already, you know, what spoke to me most and, and what was well received and what I think I can build on for the future. I, I, and there's a few of those, um, you know, Philadelphia is a real city. They're not going to bullshit you. And I feel like I'm not, I'm not trying to bullshit anybody with my work. I'm just trying to make good tools that you want to look at. You enjoy holding and you enjoy using. Yeah. 
I, I, my favorite thing with you know with this in this business is seeing the 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 kind of the evolution of where you've come from. I recently got one of my knives from like seven or eight years ago, mm. and then I'm holding it up to my newest knife, and you can see. You know, that see that transformation. You can see the decisions that were made that were was very, very, um, you know, these sh- small incremental steps. And I wonder what your next step is. What What's the plan? Because when you started to do the Batwing knives, it was more of production work, which yeah. I was very happy for. Super duper light. You had a lot of material taken off on the inside of that handle, which mm-hmm. was quite a strong move. Uh, for culinary knives, you can do that. Uh, for other knives, I'm not 100 percent sure. I was always right. amazed looking at the looking at the images of your work in progress pieces. They were very thought of in terms of the weight, in terms of the weight. And your batwing knives, I have one of your batwing knives is light, light as a feather. It's mm-hmm. kind of surprisingly light. What was your plan to do in regards to production? I feel like that's your move. Well, it's something that I've been learning a lot about because I've only done one production line and it was it only consisted of 60 pieces total, which, you know, on on the large scale isn't isn't that much, right? Um, but I learned a lot and I I'm I'm sort of taking a lot of what I learned and I'm bringing it forward. I mean, I I've always loved to build light knives because, you know, I'm I'm making knives that any home cook can enjoy, but really they're aimed at cooks and they're aimed at chefs. Yeah, because you know if you're if you're swinging a knife all day and you got to do a you know a couple of fifty pound sacks of onions or whatever it may be, you want something light. You don't want a blade heavy knife because it's going to be exhausting. Hmm. You know, you almost want it to be an extension of your hand. And it you know after a while, I think a heavy knife it doesn't really lend itself to that. Um, but there's a lot of things that I'm trying to sort of play with and different things that I've done in the past that I. I think there's a lot that remains to be explored. I was just talking with um, Rob at um, Accoutre Richmond, which is my newest uh, stockist. And he and I were talking about the work that I've been doing with traditional WA-style handles, the octagonal handle, and yeah. how that can be improved. Because I think that there's a lot, you know, despite the fact that, you know, Japanese knives have featured them for many years, I think that there's, you know, from an ergonomic standpoint, a lot that can be explored still. So I'm kind of taking the, that traditional handle geometry and I'm tr- sort of skewing it and I'm I'm pulling it out and I'm tapering things and, and, and trying to make it uh, almost a little bit, more ergonomic, like almost a palm swell on a wah handle, right? Hmm. You know, the, it, it, what is interesting about the wah, the, so if you're listening and you're like, what the fuck's a wah handle? Mm. So there's hidden tang knives and full tang knives. And wah style handle on a hidden tang knife is basically if you go to a sushi restaurant and you see the guy behind the counter, he has a Japanese style knife that has a handle that's in, the tang is embedded in the handle. This isn't knife talk, ladies and gentlemen. This is, I'm, I'm, I want to just back it up just so some of you, I know, I know Keith, uh, Keith Decent needs to know what, uh, what a wah style handle is. It's basically like, like it's an embedded handle, octagonal handle, or round handle, or oval handle, but it's embedded into the tang. So the tang is not—you don't see the entire profile on the steel. You see this like almost like a stick, and it's embedded in the handle. I've always felt because I do both—I do both—but I've always felt that, and I might be wrong. I almost feel like the hidden tang style knives, the wa style, the Japanese style, where it's a long octagonal. 
It doesn't have any. Uh, it doesn't have any swells. It doesn't have any. It doesn't. It's not ergonomic at all, like you were saying. Mm. I almost feel like they're not as user friendly as a Western style knife. Like no. I feel like that's so. It's they're they're easy to make. They're great to make. People love to buy them. But for an everyday user, I always felt like they're not as they're they're much more of a specialty style handle knife than uh, like a western style knife mm. with like a you know whatever full tang hidden tang doesn't matter but it's like a western style handle as opposed to that octagon handle you know i think they're uncomfortable i think that you know our our hands are not symmetrical right there you know nature abhors a straight line it and and all of those handles end in right angles to the blade they're perpendicular right. and that's just it's always bugged me so i'll i'll taper it out and i'll sort of make that step with a chamfer and i'll i'll try to make it feel a lot more interesting more comfy not interesting because hmm. really it doesn't matter how interesting it is unless it feels good and works well who gives a shit how interesting it is right yeah I agree with you. No, I agree with you. Yeah. And, I, and it, I, I'm trying to figure out a way to. I'm trying to bring it back to the rocketry because, yeah. you know, when one thing that you did say that was interesting in regards to you being into rocketry was not going into, not going into aerospace because the idea that there might you might be working with them on a military for the military complex and you might mm-hmm. be making rockets that you know used as like weapons against other people and that really wasn't your thing. Do you feel that there could be a parallel between that and getting into knife making? Because obviously, knives are tools, but at the same time, they are, you know, whether you like it or not, they are, you know, they are dangerous objects. Do you ever well, think about that? Well, they can be dangerous. Um, do you ever think about that? I, I do think about that, but a hammer can be dangerous, too. I know. And, you I know, know but... there, there's so much, there, like, any tool, can, if misused, can be very dangerous. I mean, I don't make hunting knives very often. For a good reason. I want to know who I'm making a hunting knife for. Um, you know, with a culinary knife, if it's misused, that was not the intended purpose by the maker. Right. Yeah. And and that's kind of, you know, I mean, aside from culinary, in my opinion, being a much bigger challenge than a hunting knife, you know, uh, geometry speaking, you know, ergonomics, they, not necessarily, you know, pattern welded steel, because you can make anything out of pattern welded steel if you want to. But... You know, I think that, you know, getting that geometry thin, tuning the food release, like all of these things, like it's almost like the F1 of knife making is culinary knives. If you know, That's my hot take. I think that it's the highest performance aspect of the industry because we will take great pains to improve a knife 0.2%. But it's that 0.2% that like, you know makes it really interesting for me like i love Hmm. performance i want it to be faster i want it to have better food release Hmm. how do you think do you i'm trying to i've seen a lot of when you were in art school when Mm. you were in sva did you have this type of passion where you pushed in this position of like this position of growth were you or did i i You know, I I think it was ingrained in me the whole time because, you know, as I said, I had to work for it. So I had jobs on top of class. I had really difficult jobs on top of class. You know, I wasn't a coal miner or anything, so take difficult with a grain of salt. But, you know, I I worked at a fab shop that um, we would do installation work for Tiffany's. 
And given their products and the fact that they were kept on site, they would lock us in. So we would get to work for an install. And this wasn't every day, mind you. This was like for Christmas. They'd lock us in at 8 p.m. and we'd work till 6 a.m. And then I'd have class the next day. What? And I think, yeah. And that was a hell of a day. You know, I would do 36 hours of work and class and then maybe sneak some sleep in there at some point. But the thing is, this kind of taught me that no one's going to make it happen for me. And I, and I I developed a really strong work ethic really early on, and I, I think you know I think it carries through. Huh. That's am- I mean that's amazing. I I I I, I want to know what what do you what's next? I I worry about your neck. I hmm. really worry about your neck. I worry about whether or not it's going to get stiff or you're going to have problems down the line. How is it? How is it put a hold on? I mean, I know you. You know, you hurt your neck and you recently got married. Congratulations! Thank you. How does the? How did the? How is the neck? How has it been affecting you in regards to the past six months? Um, it slowed me down in the shop for sure. You know, standing at the grinder all day uh, isn't really a thing anymore. I can do. I can do a couple hours and then I just got to stop. You know, because it's it's too much looking down or it's too much one position or that. And you know, I I take a break and have a cup of tea. And honestly, like that's the sort of thing that I probably should be doing anyway. But I mean, I would, I would sit at the grinder for four five, six hours. I would sit there for as long as I have to. I mean, I'll do a pile of knives at a time. And, um, you know, I, I push through it. It hurts. It hurts all the time. I'm not worried about it staying, uh, being stiff. Cause it's still already stiff. I mean, now it's all downhill as far as I'm concerned. It couldn't possibly oh, really? be worse. Yeah. Cause how much worse could it get? You know, I'm, I'm trying to take care of myself. I'm doing the therapy and I'm not going to let it slow me down any more than it already has. What's next for Steve Pellegrino? Well, I'm going to be taking a lot of time to to think about that. Well, you know, as I move forward, I'm going to be doing some experiments through the winter, which is always the slow time. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to scale up, but I, I kind of need to examine how I'm going to do that. Because there's a lot of production knife makers out there now. So, you know, I need to figure out what makes it mine. What, make, what am I doing and, and, and why is it special? All right, so I'm giving you I'm giving you theoretically the wherewithal to know how to get you done what you need to get done. Mm-hmm. What are your objectives? Uh scale. I I want to make more knives, not necessarily just me, um employees. Um I need a bigger shop because everything I've done now has been in a one one car garage. Right. Uh which is not a lot. And I've had to get very creative with tooling and and how the logistics work, uh, which I don't mind. I'm not. It's not a gripe because it keeps me creative, and I, and I really like having limitations. You know, just like Tomer was talking about last week, the smaller the box, the more interesting the solution, right? Yeah. So I I valued that, but at this point, there's very little room left for tools. Full stop. So yeah. a bigger shop is going to be necessary. More power is going to be necessary. Um, but the objectives are, you know, more volume so I can lower the price, so I can get knives in more people's hands, so that I have more time to do all of the wacky creative projects that I really want to, you know, so I can take customs that I can spend months on. 
I give you a lot of credit for that because I remember when you were selling the bat wings and I got one of them. Mm -hmm. I thought the price was very, very, very reasonable. And what I liked about that, because I try to keep my prices reasonable. I hate raising prices. I want, I love the idea of being approachable. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea, Tomer's the same way. I love the idea that you're looking at it like you want to get knives into people's hands and mm -hmm. not try to like, you know, squeeze everybody for every knife for all it's worth. Right. Well, so my customs have gone up because at the end of the day, I need to value my time. Right. And if you want me to spend time with only you, it's going to cost you. However, if you just want a good tool, I want to give you one for as little as I possibly can. Yeah. Because it's I think that, labor. yeah, I mean, you know. I'm not saying Ace Hardware makes the best tools in the world, but if you can pick up a hammer for 12 bucks, you can go home and get the work done that you need. And sometimes that's all it takes. I recently got a request. A guy had this knife, and he wanted me to make – he had a uh, a folding knife. And he had a, it was a specific name. There's no reason to even give it the name out, but mm. – it was he wanted a different style blade to attach to the knife. So it was like a remove, I guess it was like, you know, bolt together and he wanted me to. Yeah. And I looked at the price and I, I was, we were just like, what kind of knife is this? And I looked at the price of the knife. It was like $150. And I just wanted to, I, we, we, I don't know what they, the, the team responded with, but I was just like, I, there's no, I'm not, you're not going to get a knife. You're not going to get a knife blade out of me for $150. It's just not <laughs> just for this bullshit thing. You might as well just get another one. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. it's, there is this, I, I do, but I do like the, I love the idea of being approachable. I think that it's a, I think that it's, 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 it's just, there's something about it. It reminds me of like, you know, when I think about, you know, the blacksmith and what we used to do back in the day, right. there was this idea of being, you know, approachable to the community. So I love that idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, I always, I, I will always reference in, in a conversation like this, Design Within Reach, which you may be aware of. It's a company, they have places in New York. And so they're selling, like, you know, it's furniture from well-known designers for a price that they will claim is more approachable. Now, we're still talking about a $5,000 chair. And it's always seemed like a misnomer to me because that's not approachable for so many people. I can't spend $5,000 on a chair, and I love the yeah. Eames chair, but I can't have one yet. And the thing is, I don't think good design should be expensive. I think good design should be democratized because it can only help everyone equally. You know, we all, at the end of the day, need the same things. I'm looking at that website right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, Three. I it's love nice. mid-century modern furniture. I love the whole design aesthetic. They've got some wacky stuff, and they've got some really nice stuff, but at, in no way is it within reach. <laughs> well, you know, that reminds me. I know that you are a fan of the Ames chair, the people, James Ames, the Ames. Ames. Charles and Ray Ames. It was a, Charles a, a, and a wife Ames. and husband yeah, team. The Ames chair is one of the most interesting designs in modern furniture. Yeah. The classic Eames chair is steel bar. It's almost like it's almost like it's woven and it's how would you describe how would you describe the style of Eames? Well, I think their biggest um advancement at the time was uh basically plywood forms made in a in a press in like an autoclave. 
You know, it was uh, plywood formed chairs in a production method that allowed them to make more chairs for more people in a design that couldn't be done with traditional woodworking methods. And, you know, I think that became revolutionary and iconic. The design is something that you can recognize the world over. and, And at the same time, those started to get very expensive because there were only so many that were original. And even the reproductions now are still very expensive. Yeah. And I think that it got to the point where now people just like to have them seen in their homes because it's a, it's a, it's a status symbol that you can spend that much money on a chair. And, and that kind of brings me back to my point. I, I don't think design should be for the elite. I think it should be for everyone. Steve Pellegrino. It's hard to beat it. You gotta, I gotta end on a high note like that. Oh yeah, guys. I want to thank you, Steve, for coming here. I appreciate you being on here. I appreciate the Philly crew. The yeah. Philly crew is the b- bunch of great dudes on the Philly crew. But I, 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 I really appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing, and I hope the rocketry comes back. For some reason, <laughs> I feel like the rocketry needs to come back. It, it could be interesting. Uh, I, I haven't considered it yet, but you know, I won't speak too soon. Don't speak too soon. I want to see. I, I need. We also need pictures of these rockets. I need the. I need the eleven foot. You need to send me a picture of the eleven foot rocket. I yeah. need to know what it looks like. I need to. I need to see the intensity of the, of this of the of the Steve Pellegrino guys. I want you to follow Pellegrino. Is it Steve Pellegrino on Instagram or Pellegrino Cutlery? It's Pellegrino underscore Cutlery. Just one underscore though. Pellegrino underscore Cutlery on Instagram. Hmm. Go follow him. One of the best-looking guys around. We didn't even talk about whether or not you were a model or not at any point never, in your life. Never. You were never a model. It was a. It was a. That was a. That was a. A lack of of determination. I think that that could have been. No. You, that could have been a thing for you. You could have easily. I, I think that there's a collective gasp behind the, uh, their earbuds of Listen, people saying, surprised that you weren't some sort of model. I never wanted to be known for what I looked like. I always wanted to be known for what I do. Dude, I'm, I was going to close this motherfucker out, but that is exactly what happened when I was growing up. I, my family was very, very, uh, um, they were very, very shallow, and they mm. didn't give a shit about what I had to say. Mm-hmm. And I was a good-looking kid, and I, and I got a lot of, I got away with a lot of murder because I was a good-looking kid. Yeah. And then I didn't like the idea that I was only good for how I looked, and I—that's I, right. one of the reasons why I look like shit all the time—is <laughs> because I don't care about how I look, and I'm far more interested. Thank you, man. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. I'm far more interested in the things that I do and say as opposed to how I look. Steve Pellegrino took the words right out of my mouth, guys. I want you to go follow Pellegrino underscore Cutlery. Go check out what Steve's up to. Follow him. Support him. He is a great guy and a great knife maker. He's got a great mind. I want you to also follow the Full Blast podcast. And guys, do me a favor. I need you to help me out. I need you to help me out by not only going to my sponsors and, 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 and you know showing some support to my sponsors, but show some support to this goddamn podcast. I need you to go to wherever you're listening to the podcast and write a review. I need you to give me five stars. I need you to subscribe because it helps me, and if it helps me, it helps you, okay? Thank you once again, Steve. You are the man. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're feeling better. I hope you're on the road to recovery. Thank and, you, buddy. Uh, I'm with you. I, I, there you go. I'm with you. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Thanks again, Steve. You got it.
The Full Blast podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.